Hello, I'm Jessica Powers and this week I am delighted to introduce Aidan Briggs who will be talking about CFA success fees and 1975 Act claims. Aidan, the floor is yours. My name is Aidan Briggs. Welcome to this week's episode. Can a claimant making a 1975 Act claim enter into a conditional fee agreement with their solicitors and then seek to include the success fee as part of their financial needs for the purposes of the claim? Court of Appeal has finally answered the question in Hirachand and Hirachand with an unequivocal yes. But the decision makes clear that claimants embarking on this course are opening themselves up to all kinds of uncomfortable inquiries. Most of us still remember the civil law's brief flirtation with the recovery of success fees from unsuccessful parties. Between the 1st of April 2000 and the 18th of January 2013, courts could and invariably did order unsuccessful parties not only to pay the successful party's costs, but where the claimant's lawyers were acting on a CFA to pay their success fee on top, which was often as much as 100% of the fees incurred. This was brutally criticised in the Jackson report and came to an end with LASPO 2012. Jackson's particular criticisms at the time were that A, Litigants with CFAs had little interest in controlling the costs which were incurred on their behalf. And B, opposing litigants faced a massively increased costs liability disproportionate to the issues. However, the CFAs themselves remained valid and enforceable. And it didn't take long for bright sparks in the field of 1975 Act claims to start including a claimant's success fee as a contingent liability within their statement of financial needs and resources. On the one hand, this is simply accurate. It's a sum of money which the claimant will be obliged to pay in the event their claim succeeds, which the court should take into account in determining their award. On the other hand, it's effectively achieving the position pre-LASPO 2012 by the back door, making a defendant estate liable for a success fee Parliament has decided the claimant herself should bear as the price for CFA representation. In a sense, this was the tip of a much larger iceberg, namely the effect of costs on awards under the 1975 Act. The judge determining a 1975 Act claim has to take detailed account of the claimant's income and expenditure, often scrutinising credit card and utility costs of relatively little value, but has to make an award in complete ignorance of whether the claimant will have to bear a costs liability, which may run into hundreds of thousands of pounds. Mr Justice Briggs in Lilliman and Lilliman lamented this position and compared it unfavourably to that in matrimonial claims in the family division, where there are only open offers and a presumption that both sides bear their own costs. It's worth remembering that the 1975 Act jurisdiction was expressly modelled on that in the Matrimonial Causes Act in 1973. Both types of claim are directed towards satisfying financial needs to achieve reasonable financial provision, but have completely different costs-shifting regimes. Those of us practising in the field had seen a variety of inconsistent decisions at first instance level with some judges refusing to take account of success fees on principle, others including them without question, and still others including a reduced sum. Hardly any of these decisions are reported, of course, and the risk gave even greater incentives to settle early. Matters came to a head in two conflicting decisions at first instance which were reported by Deputy Master Linwood in Ree Clark 2019 and His Honour Judge Gosnell in Bullock and Denton in 2020. Deputy Master Linwood considered the legislative policy of LASPO 2012 was clear and he should not seek to circumvent it. Moreover, he considered to allow success fee recovery would put a CFA claimant in a better negotiating position and in a better position than a claimant in, say, a personal injury claim who wouldn't be able to recover their success fee. 
Zona Judge Gosnell, on the other hand, did not feel constrained by such issues of principle. He considered that having determined there was a failure to make reasonable provision, he had to assume the success fee was payable. There was therefore a financial need for the purposes of Section 3 of the 1975 Act. Step forward, Sheila Hirachand. Her father died in 2016, leaving his modest estate to his widow, a profoundly deaf woman in her 80s who is in permanent residential care. Sheila issued a claim for reasonable provision for her maintenance out of her father's estate. The proceedings were complicated by the mother's failure to acknowledge service of the claim, meaning she was debarred from participating in the trial. The judge, Mr Justice Cohen, made a modest award of £138,918, of which £16,750 was to meet part of the success fee due under Sheila's CFA. The actual success fee was some £48,000, an uplift of 72%. So Sheila was still left to bear the remaining 32,000 herself. The judge considered it would not be fair on Sheila to ignore her liability for the success fee completely, but also could not impose the whole burden on the estate. He went on to say, I cannot envisage how it could reasonably be thought that the chance of failure was a high chance when considering the uplift and decided to award a 25% uplift instead of the 72% that Sheila had agreed. The mother appealed. And so the matter came before Lady Justice King, who gave the lead judgment in the Court of Appeal. Lady Justice King started from the uncontroversial principle that a 1975 Act award could be used to pay debts as well as to provide income after Eilert and Blue Cross and the extensive examination of what is meant by maintenance. In the family division, where cost orders are very much the exception rather than the rule, the court always has a complete picture of the party's cost position when deciding a needs-based award, and unrecoverable costs are capable of being a financial need for the purposes of the Matrimonial Causes Act. Lady Justice King applied the same logic to the 1975 Act claims. In fact, the policy issue which so deeply troubled Deputy Master Limwood doesn't feature in the judgment at all. Success fees are a debt, therefore a financial need, therefore they may be provided for in the award. What Parliament has said about their recovery in terms of costs orders simply doesn't trouble the Court of Appeal when it comes to making substantive awards. However, no sooner had Lady Justice King reached that conclusion than she began to qualify it. By no means, she says, will it always be appropriate to make such an order, and it will only be made to the extent necessary to ensure reasonable provision, i.e. the burden of the success fee may be mitigated but need not be completely removed by the award. She goes further, essentially setting up a negative presumption in these terms. It is unlikely that an award will include a sum representing part of the success fee unless the judge is satisfied that the only way in which the claimant had been able to litigate was by entering into a CFA arrangement. The underlying problem identified in Linneman that the successful claimant may still be deprived of part or all of her award by, for example, failing to beat a Part 36 offer, remains unsolved. But at least we now have a clear answer on the issue of success fees. I can't help feeling, however, that it's an answer which begs a number of further questions. First, what evidence does the court require to satisfy itself that the success fee is actually payable? The CFA is a privileged document. Is the claimant obliged to waive privilege as the price of including the success fee? Second, if the CFA is disclosable, why not the reasons for setting the uplift at the agreed level? 
Mr Justice Cohen felt able to comment on what a reasonable success fee would have been on the facts in Hirachand. If there's going to be an argument over the level of the success fee, then the reasons for setting it at that level will be relevant to the court's decision. This essentially takes matters further than they went under the pre-Jackson regime, when the level of the uplift and the reasons for it were not open to question once an enforceable agreement had been established. This leads to a really tricky issue for claimant solicitors. How does one simultaneously argue in correspondence that your client's claim has a good prospect of success while seeking to justify a high success fee, which is only consistent with a relatively low prospect of success? Of course, prospects of success are not the only factor in determining a success fee. There may be questions over solvency of the defendant, for example, but they're usually the most important factor. Third, what if the prospects change over time? The CFA will usually be agreed at the very outset of the claim, pre-issue. The success fee will usually change upon issue and again at trial. What happens when new evidence comes to light, which harms or improves the prospect of the claim? And finally, how is the court to assess the factual issue of whether, in the words of Lady Justice King, the only way in which the claimant had been able to litigate was by entering into a CFA arrangement? It seems to me claimants will have to give evidence as to the other options they considered, insurance, litigation funding, etc. Does a claimant need to shop around several solicitors to see who will offer them best deal? In my view, these issues are a gift to defendant solicitors, who can make hay asking difficult questions of claimant solicitors, driving a wedge between them and their clients over relatively small sums of money in the grand scheme of a 1975 Act claim. But I come back to the overall unsatisfactory state of the cost regime in 1975 Act claims generally. The judgment in Hirachand does not address either of the key reasons why Jackson recommended an end to recoverable success fees. Claimants still have little incentive to reduce costs, and defendants still up paying out more unless they make generous Part 36 offers. If they do, the court's award to the deserving claimant will likely be rendered inadequate by the cost-shifting provisions of Part 36. Neither of these is really satisfactory, but it will take some more fundamental changes to resolve that. Thank you, Aidan. That was a really interesting review of recent Court of Appeal authority in this area and certainly posed a lot of very interesting questions for our listeners. Thank you very much. As ever, thank you for listening. Please feel free to rate the podcast. And until next time, goodbye.